QD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM, Community Radio for the Monterey Bay. You're here with the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Dion O'Reilly, and I'm here with Farnaz Fatimi, and we're talking with Christopher Soriano, who is a Watsonville poet. He was born and raised in Watsonville to Mexican-American parents. He attended Cabrillo College and then went on to UC Santa Barbara. And then he commuted from Watsonville to get his MFA in writing from the University of San Francisco. His work has appeared in the Portugal Review. He is a contributor to Watermelanin, an online literary magazine that champions the work of people of color. He's a writer for the L.A.-based production company for All Media Productions, and he is currently working on his first novel. Welcome, Christopher. We would like to have you start, if you wouldn't mind, by reading a poem for us, and we'll get started that way. Certainly. Um, Thank you for having me here. All right, so this poem was previously published in the Porter Ghost Review last year, and it's called The Body Hangs. It hangs in the living room, the body but not the soul. The soul left a long time before the body found the rope on sale at the local hardware store, a Home Depot where the undocumented waited outside and pleaded to help con lo que usted requiere. The body drove home and made sure the dogs were walked and fed before tying the noose around its neck. Had the soul been there, it might have hesitated after kissing the dogs goodbye. Consider the possibility of them resting besides their tombstone out of the mysterious love and loyalty, though maybe just love, present only in dogs. The soul might have shed tears and chosen to live out of the premise that life was worthwhile. But the soul was not present by then, only the body. And the body did not care who would walk in on it, floating above the tip table. It only hoped that the one forced to cut it down would have enough sympathy to prepare a proper burial and house the dogs. Is there anything you would like the audience to know about this poem? Anything especially especially important that you think the audience should know about this poem before we talk about it a little bit more? Sure. I mean, I wrote this poem when I was in a very dark place, and I don't necessarily have anything to say about the poem itself so much as that dark place particularly for those who are struggling with mental illness, I highly, highly, highly implore you to go seek help. Well, when I read this poem, first off, I think that the opening line is killer. Mm -hmm. It hangs in the living room. And with the title, The Body Hangs, Mm -hmm. we immediately see that body. It's quite a stark opening. I can see why it got picked up by Porter Gulch Review. But it really feels about like it's about alienation, marginalization, and the unsupported body. 
Would you say that's accurate? Um, I'll let the readers decide that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like the um, le- the more wide-ranging, uh, um, unsupported body that you said, Dion, because it's not that's that can apply that can be figurative and literal. Mm-hmm. The body hangs. Um, there's some really great, just very quotidian, everyday details in this poem. The local hardware store, the Home Depot. And then you have the undocumented, undocumented waiting outside and pleading con lo que usted quiere. And those people are outside. They're marginalized and they're pleading. So I feel kind of a relationship between the speaker and the world there. I mean, when I wrote that little detail, I thought about struggle, Mm -hmm. particularly about the struggle that the narrator is going through mentally Mm -hmm. and the struggle that somebody has to go through economically, financially, physically. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to prove that stark difference that you're right. It, partly it is about alienation because when one is in a very dark place, they don't see anyone else around them. They tend to isolate themselves. Mm-hmm. And those little details that could possibly bring someone to connect with others, to sympathize with others, to empathize with others, um, is lost on them. Except the dogs remain. It seems to me the dogs are that one connection that doesn't go away for the alienated narrator and the body and the, the people left behind as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. he says, though, maybe just love present only in dogs. I, I see in other places in your work a relationship between the inner state of mind and the, and the political and civil nature of the world around the speaker. I see a real relationship um, of that in your poetry. But there is sympathy. There is, I mean, mm. the light in the poem is the call for sympathy and empathy. Another great detail is the tipped table. Only the body, and the body did not care who would walk in on it, floating above the tipped table. The tipped table is sort of like a metaphor for um, the off-center mm. world the world that is not working. At the end, you have a reference to a proper burial, and you're hoping that whoever finds the speakers, it only hoped that the one forced to cut it down would have enough sympathy to prepare a proper burial and house the dogs. That's pretty poignant ending there. Mm-hmm. I felt a real relationship to the undocumented who are outside of the Home Depot and the desire on the speaker's part that people would have enough sympathy to care for the dogs who are earlier presented as objects of love. I mean, yeah, that the detail with the dogs um, comes from my own personal life because I... Like, as I mentioned before, I wrote this when I was in a very dark place. And before, um, 
before I got my own dog, which was in around 2016, um, well, then that dark place was definitely darker mm-hmm. because there seems to be some sort of, like I mentioned in the poem, um, loyalty and love that seems to be present only in dogs. We have a very strange relationship with animals, um, us humans, and we don't tend to be that cynical towards animals as we are towards humans. <laughs> the way that, why are these people trying to talk to me? We wouldn't say the same thing about a dog. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily because they can't talk, but because when they approach you, it's something out of excitement for them mm-hmm. and something out of excitement for you. So um, what I want to illustrate with that detail was that if there was anything that would have held the body back, the soul back, from committing that act, it would have been something unconditional, which is the love that comes from a dog. Mm. Yeah, but for me, your poem, too, is larger than that. Like, it carries out into society from one another and the people that are marginalized around the Home Depot. It's really quite lovely. It's the call for for love in the poem. So you, you grew up in Watsonville, Mm-hmm. And um, do you feel like your place of origin, your family of origin, really affects your poetry? Does the landscape there affect your poetry? Does it influence your writing in any way? I feel like it influences my fiction more than my poetry. My poetry tends to be very personal, whereas my fiction tends to... I don't want to call it political because I don't necessarily consider myself a political poet, a political writer because I fear writing a manifesto over a story. So, but it's political in the sense that it is politically aware of things that are happening, such as in this poem, it was politically aware that there are undocumented people outside of Home Depot trying to get a job because they can't get a job elsewhere because they still have to feed their families. And the political aspect of that also being that um, this narrator who has isolated themselves can't seem to see that and can't mm-hmm. seem to find a cause to fight for it. So, but in terms of live, growing up in Watsonville, I mean, yeah, I think every everyone is affected with where they grow up. And for me, it was a predominantly Latinx community where I would actually hardly see any white people unless I came to Santa Cruz because over there, it seemed to we seem to be in a kind of a segregated county where there's more... Um, Latinx and people of color in Watsonville because it's also a little um, more affordable there. Do you you live there again at this? I, I currently yeah. live there right yeah. now. Yes. So, um, do you think what what do you think that's meant to you to return to the place that you grew up? It's because I'm a millennial, and millennials <laughs> can af- seem to afford their own rent. <laughs> See, I graduated, I have a master's degree, and I still cannot afford my own place. So, And that's not something that's an isolated incident. That's actually an economic issue yes. because a lot of my friends can't afford their own places. They can't afford their own places alone, and they often have to get roommates, and they often have to get more than one job, more than one part-time job because full-time jobs just seem to be much harder to get. So... I'm currently living in my parents' house. I plan to move out soon, but yes, Mm -hmm. um, 
that is that is what is going on right now. The, the point that for me to return to my hometown is mostly economic. Mm. Mm-hmm. Although at the same time, I will say that it's kind of personal because um, I'm one of the few from Watsonville, I assume, who actually has an MFA mm-hmm. in writing. Mm-hmm. So what I do find is that when I tell people that I have an MFA in writing, they tend to ask me so... Um, they tend to come to me and say, well, I have a book in mind. You know, I'm also a writer. So it kind of just opens up the conversation mm-hmm. to, and particularly in Watsonville, to people of color who never considered themselves that they could be writers because a lot of the publish industry is white, particularly old white mm-hmm. men male. Mm-hmm. And very East Coast. Yes. Too. Yeah. Yes. They're one of the greatest things about... Um, I think it was around two years ago when Jasmine Ward won the National Book Award for Sing Unburied Sing. And that was the twice that was the second time that she had won it. The first time was for Salvage the Bones. And she's not a um, she's not a white male author from New York. She's from Mississippi. Yes. She's female and she's black. So it was a big significance for someone like that to actually win the award over another New York, yet another New York white male author. The tides seem to be shifting in a way. It's going more towards people of color. It's going more towards women. And it's going more towards um, the LGBTQ community. Is it perfectly there? No. Perfectly there yet. And there was actually this article that was recently published by the L.A review of books I think it's called where it talked about something called comp titles comp titles being comparative titles when you look at a book it often says something like for the readers of or something as in the lines of this is the next so and so this is the next Gone Girl this is the next Jodi Picoult this is the next so and so Um, and so when books are put picked up for publication by editors they're mostly looking for a book to compare to that has already done well and a lot of those books unfortunately have been still white male authors and it's even worse for people of color because um, those few books that are about POC tend to want to tell the POC story which is mostly like I grew up as an immigrant or I grew up in an impoverished community or so-and-so, some sort of stereotype that sort of affirms the belief of what being POC means, particularly for writers. And when you say POC, you mean people of color. Correct. Correct. Um, So, in fact, if you look at the statistics, it's still around the 80 percentage point where the publishing industry is still white. Mm. And also, and more so white male. So that is still an issue that we still have to address. And I'm hoping that with people like Jasmine Wards, um, women, um, people of color, uh, LGBTQ, the more awards that they the more awards that they receive, the more recognition that they'll get so that people can start actually investing more in these authors to diversify the industry. So what you'll get will be, this is the next Jasmine Ward. <laughs> yeah. So every time one person breaks through, it starts a trend, starts a little yes. trend. 
Well, at the same time, we don't want to keep comparing the same author because how many t- how many movies by black filmmakers are we going to keep comparing it to Get Out? How many to Sorry to Bother You? There's going to become this pattern where you're going to keep seeing more um, more POC being compared to one title alone. So you don't necessarily want to have this is the next um, Jasmine Ward. You want to have this is the first so-and-so. <laughs> yeah, we want people to be thinking outside of the box. Well, maybe we should talk about some of your influences, um, some of your Actually, favorite writers. Can we, can we all, I would like to hear how you started writing um, before we okay. get to, right. unless they're relate, the two they're questions related. could be related. Uh, yeah. Um, and so you can ask, a- answer either one first, but it would be nice to hear how you started writing, whether it was poems or fiction or both, um, and so what got you to be thinking about making words. My writing journey has been boring to everyone but me. (laughs) Um, All that matters. Yes. (laughs) And what I mean by that is that I actually did not like reading as a child. I actually despised it because I would much rather play video games. Mm -hmm. Um, It was just, it was the 90s, it was the early 2000s, and the GameCube, the Game Boy, the... um, PlayStation, they were out, and they were the ones that held my attention. It wasn't until... I mean, I did read some books, such as um, Captain Underpants and the Harry Potter books, but that's mostly because they tend to align with something that was fun for me at the moment. You know, I didn't have much interest in Hemingway in Fitzgerald as a child. It wasn't, un- it wasn't actually until taking a class on Spanish literature, Spanish language literature, that I actually started to become more um, interested in it. This was in junior year of high school, and I remember, I remember so vividly being introduced to authors such as Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, Miguel de Cervantes, Saavedra, and um, Julio Cortazar and Carlos Fuentes, Colombian, Spaniard. Um, Mexican. Is Fuentes is Mexican, but I'm struggling with Cortazar. Cortazar, uh, Colombian. No, that's that's Marquez. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was one factor. There was actually another factor, which was that I tried writing for a um, for a contest. I wrote a poetry, a poem for a contest. I was involved with a, a creative writing club in high school, and um, for for the end of the semester. The club manager, uh, Mr. James Lucas, if you're hearing this, yes, I just gave you a shout out. (laughs) Um, He took us to a trip to the Beat Museum over in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. which introduced me to Jack Kerouac, introduced me to Alex Ginsberg. But I particularly fell in love with Jack Kerouac because, see, there's this thing about representation that... I think is what got me into writing because whenever I would think about books, I would think old white males in New York, old English white males in New York, either that wrote in English, but because I was born Mexican American and raised in a Spanish household, it wasn't until I learned about more Latin American authors that I actually felt connected to the work. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I learned about Kerouac as well, which thought to which I thought to myself, here is this young lad um, writing and writing in a way that is not inhibited by 
um, structural old English grammar. He was a free write prose writer, and I greatly admired that at the time. Um, so that's kind of when I thought, well, this is something that I would like to do because at a young age, I also like to tell stories. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons why I liked video, video games such as the Final Fantasy series and Kingdom Hearts was for their stories. Um, but it wasn't until I discovered those authors that I thought to myself, maybe this is the way I can tell stories. Mm. Maybe this is the way that I'll be able to tell my story. Were you reading those, um, those writers in Spanish or were you reading them in English? I read them in Spanish. I also read the English translations. I actually read them side by side. Mm-hmm. That must have been pretty exciting. It was also very tough because it's one thing to speak um, English and Spanish fluently back and forth, but it's another thing to also read it. Especially when you're reading something like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I mean, he's mm-hmm. using such vernacular and unusual words. So, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so many variations in vocabulary across Spanish that you probably learned a lot of new words that way. But that must have been pretty exciting to discover that work mm-hmm. as, a, as a teenager. Was that at Watsonville High? No, this was in Pajaro Valley High School. Mm. And was this an AP Lit class? Um, it was, yes, it was an AP um, Spanish literature class. And, the, and learning about Jack Kerouac and the beat writers was um, more of a... Um, extracurricular. Mm-hmm. It was a creative writing club. So w- we talked a little bit about the, the early influences. I'm assuming that you have um, current influences, people you're reading that make you want to keep writing. Um, could you tell us about some of those? Sure. I actually brought a list. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have this challenge that I make to myself to read at least 50 books a year Mm -hmm. um it's part of the goodreads challenge you just set your time your limit there so um but mostly I've been reading a lot of um people of color because I'm trying to um kind of decolonize my reading list so some authors that I've been reading have been like Roberto Bolaño um Celeste Ng I already mentioned Jasmine Ward before um, Hanyan Yanagihara, who's the one that I'm currently reading. Alice Monroe, um, although she's not POC. Um, <laughs> Kazuo Shiguro, he is. Haruki Murakami and Kim Young-ha, among mm. others. Those are, I think, all fiction writers, no? Yeah, I mean, for poets, um, I was actually thinking of sharing some poets that I uh, found very um, helpful mm-hmm. to me, uh, very influential such as Jay Hopler, such as Douglas Manuel, um, Tracy K. Smith, and I think my favorite, Solma Sharif. Oh, yeah, she's wonderful. Um, Do you read both poetry and fiction um, in an ongoing way? Um, I tend to switch, which is to say that if I read fiction now, I have to read nonfiction later, then I have to read poetry, and then Mm -hmm. I have to go back and forth and forth. Would you would you like to read a poem from one of those poets that you brought um, to so, something that might represent 
what you like the best about what they're doing, maybe from Solmaz Sharif's book. That's Look that you brought, correct? Yeah, that's probably one of my favorite collections of all time. <laughs> I actually got to see her read over in the University of San Francisco. She was one of the guest poets there. And she, the way that she read, God, I love her. Um, the way that she read was just so incredible um, because... To tell to say a little bit about this book, Look by Soma Sharif, it has to do with vocabulary, particularly the dictionary of military and associated associated terms from the United States Department of Defense. So it has to do with war, and it has to do with the language that we use to address war. So one of the poems I'm going to read is about a casualty, but how she addresses that is just incredible. So. Before you read that poem, can we just say that this is KSQD 90.7 FM, and this is the Hive Poetry Collective, and we're talking with Christopher Soriano, a Watsonville-based poet, and this is Diana Riley and Farnos Fatemi, and Christopher is about to read um, from one of his favorite poetry collections. Um, I do not think that this poem actually has a title. It's more of a just there in the collection poem. Um, but I will do my best to um, read it anyways. <clears throat> Daily, I sit with the language they made of our language to neutralize the capability of low dollar value items like you. You are what is referred to as a casualty. Unclear whether from a catalytic or frontal attack. Unclear the final time you were addressed, thou beloved. It was for us a catastrophic event, just destroyed. Died of wounds received in action. And yes, there was early warning. You said you were especially scared of mortar rounds. In execution planning, they weighed the losses, the sustainability, and budgeted for X number. They budgeted for a phone call to your mother and weighed that against the amount saved in rations for your taste, and your taste for cigarettes, and the tea you poured your boys, and the tea you would have poured me approaching, hello. The change you collected in jars, jumping a bit as the family learns to slam the home's various doors. So what I hear in that is people being turned into commodities mm -hmm. and being dehumanized. Mm -hmm and subject to the results of war. It's a major themes of the book overall, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very powerful collection. It's uh, somehow dark and human and horrible, and I couldn't put it down. I don't know if you felt the same way, but um, it's so dark, and I, but I could not stop reading. Um, and I think that was, that's part of her um, brilliance is the human keeps the key, the human doesn't go away despite these attempts to dehumanize. Mm -hmm. Very everyday vernacular, very just like people talking the way they talk to each other, very accessible that way. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons it was. One of my favorites was because of the way she read it. She read it in a very um, deadpan way, mm. very blunt, 
um, which kind of goes to show like how the language is used, as you said, to dehumanize. And at the same time, how it also humanizes because you can't really take, you can't really look at these things and not find poetry in it, whether it's very tragic poetry, whether it's um, very light poetry, but there always seems to be a message no matter where you find it. It felt kind of syn- syncopated too, in terms of the, the bluntness of the language. It had like a sort of a syncopated beat to it almost. Right, I felt that too, and I can only, I can only wish to write poetry like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, good influence. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should go ahead and hear another one from you. Okay, um, so this one, I actually just recently submitted to a magazine, but I'll give you all a sneak preview. Um, It's called How Are You Doing? I'm good. Just want to run away. I've been feeling a little weird. Weird as in dreadful. A black hole forming near my heart that stops the light and or light um, from flowing through me. I was thinking about my friend, the dead one across the ocean. No time to mourn because I've been swamped with work, drowning in it, doing what I can to ignore my shallow breathing. Deaths of global citizens, the hour by hour the country descends into lunacy and sorrow. Look at these headlines. Look at this paperwork. Look at how I'm still miraculously able to get out of bed, dragging myself to a job that, oh, I'll just say it, feels like a prison. A work environment willing to change me rather than me change it. I'm just tired. I guess from the walks I take to clear my head. My therapist assures me there's nothing wrong with me. These feelings are pretty normal these days. And I'm starting to hate normal because normal closed my heart. Normal left a struggle carry on like a passive-aggressive battle between parents where the casualties are the children at home now sick with Stockholm Syndrome. It turns out feeling nothing is worse than pain. Like when you try to hold your nephew and don't feel a thing. Not love. Not hate. I can pass the child along. I can wait my turn. What about you? Have you also been obsessed with your regrets? Telling yourself to relax to no avail? Not wanting to get out of bed, becoming the textbook definition of a mental breakdown? Have you realized how lonely you are? Because of how overworked you are? Because of how lonely you are? How broken? How empty? How closed? Because, because, because. Thank you. Well, before I talk about this, I'd just like to ask you again, is there anything in particular that you would want people to know about this poem? Uh, I made a reference around the beginning where I talked about a friend of mine who passed away um, across the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. And she passed away in England And I was not told the news directly, more I found out about it through social media. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that particularly sparked me to writing this thing was because of I was never given any time to mourn. Mm -hmm. I remember finding out the news at work and which is kind of comes across 
what I say about how overworked you are. And I kind of found that both, um, I found that both relieving and not because, um, because obviously these feelings are pent up inside me, but at the same time, I didn't want to have a breakdown in front of the students where I was teaching. I think that the form that you use, which is the very common, how are you doing, where people ask that mm -hmm. and they don't really want to know the answer, um, is really a good way to express the way we have to live in the world in such a superficial way. And um, Yeah, I mean, I know that the viewers... The people listening in can't um, see it, but some of the text in the in the poem is italicized. And the reason for that was because when I first thought of this poem, I wanted to make it seem like text messages that someone would respond to mm -hmm. and the thoughts that would be behind them. Mm -hmm. For example, whenever... Um, when obviously just like you said it's a very it could be a very superficial sort of existence where somebody could ask you how are you and you just say i'm good but you're not good there's you're trying to hold a lot of things in and unfortunately some of those things could get out um through passive aggressiveness um, because how often are we all completely feeling good you know, I mean, we always answer, fine, thank you. Oh, my great. mother trained me to say, fine, thank you. How are you? But, you know, the truth is that uh, feeling completely 100% fine is not something that happens very often. Right. There's usually something, the bills, the insurance, there's usually something that... Um, is not so great, but you can't talk about it. Right, and in the, in, the, in the second half of the poem, the narrator refers to being assured this is normal to feel these things. The therapist assures him. Um, but it's that we need to be assured that we are, you're trained to pretend otherwise. Yeah, we need a <laughs> professional to tell us that we can't feel great yeah. all the time. Yeah. That's amazing. Um. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about therapy, particularly because I've been going through to therapy mm -hmm. for a very long time. I'm still going to therapy. And one of the things I find is that I find it very relieving because it's very sad when you say there's some things that you cannot tell the people you know because of the biases that they that could come up when you tell them about it. You could talk about your mother to your friend, but the friend might have known you for years, so you can't necessarily um, trust that they'll have an unbiased um, opinion on what you're going through with your mother. Um, as for a therapist who has a completely objective eye because they have absolutely no idea who you're talking about, um, that's when you could actually let out a lot of your feelings that, you, that you're... Um, that you have pent up inside you. The way you talk about society here, it's you kind of talk about society as if it's a little bit of a dysfunctional family. My therapist assures me there's nothing wrong with me. These feelings are pretty normal these days. I'm starting to hate normal because normal closed my heart. Normal left the struggle, left the struggle carry on, 
like a passive-aggressive battle between parents where the casualties are the children at home now, sick with a Stockholm Syndrome. So, yeah, it, the once again, I see the personal with the civil and the personal with the political mm-hmm. in your poems, where the, your personal feelings are extending out into the world. Hmm. Yeah, I mean... When is anything not political? To be honest, um, you're very being in a con- in one of the most powerful economic superpowers is political. Um, your skin tone is political. When you think to yourself, I don't really see politics, that means that it's just not affecting you. Um, and so, you know, it's not affecting your, the right to your body. It's not affecting where you go to school. It's not affecting your finances. It's not affecting how people look at you at the supermarket um, when you're just trying to grab a bag of chips. But besides the point, yes, society, at least in this poem, does kind of feel like a dysfunctional family. And frankly, I think more people can benefit from poetry, um, especially before they have children, before they start passing on traumas that they had from their own parents onto their new children. Do you feel that poetry helps you be more objective about your life, like kind of helps you be your own therapist? Um, I never thought of it that way, but now that I'm being forced to think about it, no, it actually feels more subjective because, like I mentioned, my poetry tends to be really personal. So whenever I write something um, in poetry, I, I have to bring it back to me. I have to make sure that it's something that I relate to, something that I think to myself, this is about me. Um, And so being aware of the fact that I know that it's going to be about me, it doesn't feel objective at all. It feels subjective. So that leads me to our next question, which is um, really about what you think the the value of poetry is in the world right now, or the place it, it has in, in the world. So you've been talking about it as something very personal. What, what would you like people to think about poetry in terms of its role in, in, 20, in the 21st century? <laughs> I mean, I think people already have the idea. They already have the idea that I'm about to say, which is that poetry and art is, art in general is just a way of expression. And it, you could make a career about, you could make a career out of it, but also you might not. But either way, don't stop making art because um, honestly, art is free therapy in a way. Because um, I always use this example: um, it's always difficult to be an artist in the world. But you never hear how people say it's difficult not to be an artist, which is to say, imagine going to your nine to five job every day after waking up early in the morning, after having to wake up early to make yourself some breakfast, um, get out of bed, not necessarily in that order, <laughs> go, to, go to work, stay there for a mundane job that you may even actually like, but still tires you out after a long day. You go home and the first thing you do, you might want to do is just relax either with um, Netflix, television, radio, a book, etc. For anybody who actually feels that way ever, where is your outlet? 
how do you express the frustration, the anger, even the happiness that you feel during the day? Um, I talk a lot of my poetry and in this interview about pent up feelings. And I think one of the things that art can do is let out those pent up feelings. Um, we team, we Americans seem to be very bad at expressing ourselves to other people directly. So one of the things that art can do is um, let out emotions so that they're not all inside you. It could be an outlet for you, um, for you to express what has to be expressed um, before you go insane. So is there now living in Santa Cruz I don't know too much about the art scene or the poetry scene in Watsonville but you mentioned before the show a few places where people can study writing is that so in Watsonville um there's currently only one place like that and that is over at the Digital Nest which is in downtown Watsonville near the Cabrillo College Center um they also started a Digital Nest over in um, Salinas, which is by the same founder, um, Jacob Martinez. So basically, the Digital Nest is a nonprofit meant to bring um, technological skills to the youth in the community. And one, one of the reasons that I was involved is because I was interested in the work they do, and they gave me the opportunity to teach screenwriting there because... Um, they learned that I have an MFA, and even though I majored in fiction, they thought, oh, writing, fiction, you could obviously do screenwriting. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, the class turned out to be a lot of fun, and the students learned a lot, and I'm very happy with how um, their projects turned out. If you just tuned in, you're at KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM, community radio for the Monterey Bay, and this is The Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Dion O'Reilly. I'm here with Farnaz Fatemi, and we're talking to Christopher Soriano, a Watsonville-based poet and writer. And Christopher, I wanted to ask you, do you have a daily writing practice? How do you nurture and develop your skill as a writer? Um, read a lot. That's rule number one, because you cannot be a writer if you're not a reader. And if you are, I don't know how you did it. <laughs> um, but as for my own personal writing practice, yes, I do read a lot, but I also try to not necessarily force myself to write a lot, but I am trying to get myself to the habit of writing every day. And particularly, I start with a notebook um, and a pen, particularly with poetry. With fiction, it's mostly on my laptop. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if either of you are on Twitter at all, but there was this, um, this technique that I found out that has been working wonders for me that apparently if you write in the Comic Sans font, Comic Sans, yeah. in either Microsoft Word or Google Doc or what have you, then you're, um, you'll be able to write more than you would in Times New Roman. And I tried that out for since the beginning of 2019, and I'm nearly done with the third draft of my novel. Okay, Easy. I'm gonna try that. <laughs> I mean, I mean it, Which, would just, it would just be fun. Is it that is it that you you write more words? 
that's the theory is that if you write in that font, you'll write more words. Yeah. I mean, and I think you do, I do write more words in the first week I wrote 9,000 words plus. Um, but I think the psychology behind it, which is the way I can also work better on a, on a notebook when I write poetry is that it doesn't feel like the final product. Mm, I see. When you write in Times New Roman, because it's one of the most commonly used fonts in the industry, at least when you're submitting and giving final drafts, then you tend to think, okay, this is it. It's over. Um, I don't have to do anything else with it. And one of the ways that I try to combat that is to print out my work, take it with me to a cafe, um, and scratch it up as much as possible. And from there, I try to retype it with the work in hand on the side, mm -hmm. um, retype the words, looking at the notes that I took um, while I was scratching it up, and then do it again. And again and again until I kill enough trees to make sure that the manuscript is perfect. So of those poems you read today, how many drafts do you think they went through? Um, <laughs> I have a quick confession about the body hangs. This is actually the first draft. And I was actually... Um, when I submitted the poem to... Uh, to the Porter Gulch Review, it was actually a bit of a shelf poem because I had written the poem in a notebook before, but then I just translated it onto a Word doc. And at the time, I knew about the Porter Gulch submissions deadline coming up. So knowing that the deadline was coming up, I thought to myself, okay, I, I want to submit something, but this is my, I'm also on my last semester of grad school which means I'm working on a thesis, which means my novel. So I don't have much time to do anything. So I kind of just looked into my poetry files, found one poem, just grabbed it, put it in an email and submitted it and thought to myself, well, at least I tried. <laughs> well, it's pretty funny that you feel like that's a confession. Like that's a dirty little secret. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't yeah. happen very often that you are able right. to. That, that's a very rare event. Yes. Mm -hmm. But as for but as for every other poem that I brought with me today, every other one, this is they're at least in their third draft. So, well, were you going to say something? No, um, you're on. Uh, so, would you read us one more poem today? Great. Let's, you can pick whichever one. Um, I'll start with one that I've been working on for a while now. It's called Existence. Existence. I sit here with my pen in hand, cracking the code to my existence. Dear pen, give me the poetry to crack the code to my existence. Don't let me exist without purpose. I write the pointless things. The world outside my windows are burning under the heat of our cruelty and indifference. I write the pointless things of love and acceptance in times of hate and bigotry. I discover myself in words over and over. I find no purpose to this other than my own pleasure, my own peace against the backdrop of this earth. Existing is exhausting. Moments begging for your participation, your take on who you are and who you want to be. I sit at my desk trying to figure it out myself. Chaos my therapist has yet to decipher for me, blaming my parents, trauma society's had impeded on me. 
Tell me, society, do I live as my existence demands? Am I that which I wanted to be? Or have I exhausted my resources and become something else entirely? Give me the pleasure of figuring it out. Give me the pleasure of poetry. I guess that's a little Ars Poetica poem mm. about poetry. I, I really love the line, I write the pointless things. Mm. But there's some irony there because they're really not pointless. Yes, and then it's followed by the, the observation about the state of the climate. Um, and then it's also about love and acceptance and um, writing words over and over. So it's, it's all these, the big and the small. Um, yeah. And how true, existence is exhausting. Moments begging for your participation. That's, that's just sort of like guilt. Like, am I doing enough? Like, what am I, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting here, but i got to do something. <laughs> Moments begging for your participation. Do you, could you tell us where this poem came from? My notebook. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, reading a, I was reading a poetry collection by Roberto Bolaño, which is the Unknown University, and I kind of wanted to try out um, his style. And so that's where the style comes from. It comes from that book. But the subject matter, it comes from... Um, there, was this, uh, there was something that I read online about um, how privilege works. And privilege works when you don't have to justify your existence to anyone. And, you know, you don't have to justify your rights. You don't have to justify your being in the country your right to be who you are, your gender, your sexuality. Um, when people, you have, I don't know if you've heard the term, it's not my job to educate you mm-hmm. because, and it isn't because when you have that job, that means you are exhausting yourself by having to explain why you are the way you are over and over and over again, which is comes from the whole, existing is exhausting just the whole idea that i'm allowed to be here especially if against this political climate um is exhausting it really seems like you do write a lot about um the difficulty of being yourself and being creative in a world that just exhausts you by survival it seems like it's it's a recurring theme in your work. Yeah, I mean, it's exhausting. <laughs> I'm not going to sugarcoat it because um, I, um, how can I put this? Basically, it is, I'm exhausted for several reasons. I'm exhausted for financial reasons. I'm exhausted for political reasons. I'm exhausted for artistic reasons. But at the same time, um, I have to keep going. You know, I don't really have a choice in the matter. Um, I have to, I'm hoping that, just like in the poem says, with poetry, I'm able to express myself and justify what I feel. I think that's the right attitude for anyone who wants to be an artist. You just really have to be prepared to persevere because um, 
what you, what you put here is I write about pointless things. And I think that uh, all of us feel that way a little bit when we're poets because you can't really monetize poetry. You know, it's very difficult um, to make it a commodity. Um, so, yeah, what you're talking about here is is at the heart of being a poet. It's writing about stuff that you're not sure people are going to care about, but you mm-hmm. still know it's important. And, and you clearly know that those last two lines of that poem... Give me the pleasure of figuring it out. Give me the fl- pleasure of poetry. That's a poet that knows what's possible from writing. Not always, the, not always there, not always available, but <laughs> there's, a, there's a, a hope. Yeah, I think that when, when poets get together, they will often talk about how hard it is. <laughs> but um, there's a we reason. enjoy it. We enjoy it. You know, there's a lot of pleasure, too. You get a lot of pleasure out of writing. Yeah, I mean, over at my um, MFA in University of San Francisco, I had a lot of good instructors. I am grateful for each and every single one of them. I learned so much. Um, And they all gave me some good advice. And one of my favorite advice came from the very first instructor I had, which was to write what is funnest at the moment. Mm -hmm. Because writing is already, and any art really, is already such a stressful enough job then why would you want to stress yourself out more? Um, so write what's funnest, write what's ever in your head, because let's say that you're writing a book. You don't have to go chronological order. Nobody is ever going to tell you to do that. And if they do, don't listen to them. Everybody has their own writing process. Haruki Murakami runs miles um, in the mornings after he writes, I would never do that. I just take my work to the local cafes, coffee shops, and get to work there. Sometimes I work with my dog next to me. Sometimes I don't. So the writing process is different. The purpose in writing is different. The purpose in art is different for everyone. So have at it. Well, this is a good time to take a moment to remind our listeners that they are listening to KSQD Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, community radio for the Monterey Bay. This is the Hive Poetry Collective. I'm Dion O'Reilly. I'm here with Farnaz Fatimi and Christopher Soriano, and we're talking poetry. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you're up to now, what uh, you mentioned the novel that you were working on for your thesis you continue to work on that, and what do you see in your future? Um, well, yeah, the novel has been a 10-year-long project, nearly. I started it since ending high school in 2010, so starting in 2020, it would be officially 10 years since starting it. Um, I'm near the end of it, though. I am just about done with every single draft that I can come up with, so... I will be sending it out to agents soon. Other than that, well, I'm trying to build up my resume by submitting more and more to other literary magazines. Of course, I'll keep working with Watermelonin, and I'll also be working with the production company over in Los Angeles on some sort of screenplays and rewrites that they'll want me to do. So the future looks bright. Will you continue to teach for Digital Nest? I will continue to teach there if they allow me to. Um, it, the thing about teaching screenwriting is that it's only in the fall and it's volunteering work. Mm -hmm. So if they allow me to come back, I will definitely do it again. 
That's great. Where can people read more of your work? Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? And we'll also post some links to our, our blog, the Hive Poetry Collective blog, which listeners can find at ksqd.org. So we'll post those, anything you, you give us to connect to. But why don't you tell us where we can look for them? Sure. Um, well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my handle is the same. Uh, C-H-Soripalma. I'll spell that out. C-H-S-O-R-I-P-A-L-M-A. And that's for both Twitter and Instagram. As for my work, obviously the Porter Gold Review. Um, you could also, I also have a blog, which I will give you the link to. Great. Um, and also you could read some work from Watermelonin, um, some of my work on there, and some work from the other contributors, and I'll give you the link to that website as well. And how often does new work show up on Watermelonin? Is that a quarterly? Is that more often? Do, is it constantly being updated? It's constantly being updated. It doesn't necessarily have a schedule okay. of when okay. things pop up, but Great. yeah, things Sounds do like pop up. a good place. Yeah. It is. Good. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. We'll end the show today, if you wouldn't mind, with the last poem that you brought with you. Um, once again, this is Christopher Soriano. You're listening to the Hive Poetry Collective, KSQD, Santa Cruz, 90.7 FM. Christopher, thanks again for being our guest today. Um, and go ahead and introduce your last piece. Thank you. It was a lot of fun being here. And for everyone listening, this is my last piece. This one's called Yurik's Skull. I want to find Yurik's skull and crush it like the eagle did the snake on the cactus. Let travelers find me beating it up and build an empire over that fight with death. Thank you, Christopher. Wonderful. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Hive Poetry Collective on KSQD. Stay tuned for the next show tonight. Cephalotron with Rick Kleffel. Be sure to come back next Sunday at 8 o'clock for mo- more poetry, more interviews. must-know poetry news. Award-winning poet Gary Young and poet and Santa Cruz Word Church co-curator Joseph Jason Santiago Lacur will read May 10th in a fundraiser for the Young Writers Program. The reading runs from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at a private Santa Cruz residence, location given at registration. Suggested sliding scale donation of 10 to $50 is asked to help support the Young Writers Program. Light snacks will be available. Drinks will be available for purchase. Condor's Hope Winery will provide wine. Register to attend at eventbrite.com. Seating is limited, so I'd go ahead and make your registration soon. Also, if you'd like to know more about The Hive, check us out on Facebook at The Hive Poetry Collective where you can leave comments on shows or give us ideas for shows if you have ideas that you'd like to share. 
You can also check out our blog at hivepoetry.org. Thank you, and we look forward to hearing from you. Good night. Be, 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 be